I grew up on the blandest food out there. So I wasn't hearing music when I grew up. Mm -hmm. But then I had, my uncle actually took me to a restaurant where um, it was sushi and the other stuff, so sushi or whatever that is, um, where they do it all performance in front of you. And it was like this really expensive restaurant in California. And um, that was the first time I heard music. And apparently you have to eat real food and um, not just mac and cheese. Um, but that that experience, it was so overwhelming and powerful that I think my brain couldn't handle it. So it misfired in a way that was beautiful. Hey, Alienism. Welcome to episode 182 of the Camino Voice. Today I speak with the founder of Forte Chocolates as well as Master Chocolatier, Please welcome Karen Nugabauer. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Kameno Voice Podcast, where I interview local business owners, comedians, singers, and more. I dive into their backstory to find out how they got where they are, what are some of the tips for you to do the same, and find out where they're going. Tune in every week as I interview more of the people you see every day. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. Uh, hope you guys are having a good week. We just had my wife's birthday this last weekend, so happy birthday to my wife. Uh, we got to go to um, a, a local state park called Larrabee State Park. If you guys haven't gone out there, uh, it's just up Chuckanut, and it's a beautiful spot to go hang out for the day. Uh, especially when you have nice weather. So uh, we got to go do that and uh, have a nice little day off. So that was fun. And um, yeah, so that was my my weekend. Hope you guys had a good weekend as well. Um, all right, this podcast, I am excited to jump into this one. Um, I'm always excited, I know. But uh, we got to actually, uh, I got to interview Karen Nugabauer, who is, like I said in the intro, founder of Forte Chocolates in Mount Vernon. Uh, so if you're ever in Mount Vernon or if you're from the island, uh, do a day trip. Do yourself a favor. Take a day trip. Go to Forte Chocolates. They've got um, a chocolate shop on in downtown Mount Vernon. Um, get yourself a box of truffles there. And um, they're incredible. Uh, they've got some flavors that you won't find anywhere else. Uh, they've got some chocolate bars that are incredible just by themselves. Um, and so just an amazing, amazing chocolate place. Um, definitely one of the best chocolate places you will ever find. Um, and it's not just me that says that because, um, so Karen is not only a master chocolatier, which there are only 10 in the world. Um, but she's also the only female master chocolatier as well as the only one in North America. So, or in the uh, United States at least. So anyways, um, she is she did all those things. Um, and so we get into a lot of different things in this podcast, uh, including talking about her conversation with, uh, or my conversation with her about um, her dyslexia that she had growing up and struggling and making it through all of that. Um, but she also has something called synesthesia, which you heard in the intro there, um, where she actually hears music when she tastes something that is amazing or um, she can kind of taste through music, which I don't understand how that works, um, but I believe it. And again, I think the proof is in the pudding or the chocolate in this case, um, through the chocolate uh, combinations and stuff that she's made. So, um, but we, we go through um, chocolate and her process for that. We go through business and how she's built the business into what it is now. Uh, and then we get into some of the other pieces of the things like I mentioned, she, the dyslexia. Um, she also now has MS or multi, I can never pronounce that whole name, but for those who know, you know, um, and uh, has continued to uh, work in the business and be part of this, uh, the chocolate community, um, despite all of the struggles that she's had to co- overcome. And so um, really, really inspirational story, um, just hearing what she's gone through to get to where she is. Uh, and also just encouraging um, that like anyone can get anywhere. Um, if you put your mind to it. So, um, uh, yeah. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Karen Nugabauer. Hey, Islanders, it's Brandon with Camino Voice. And today I'm here with the founder of Forte Chocolates and Master Chocolatier. Welcome to the podcast, Karen Nugabauer. 
Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Karen. Um, yeah, I am a master chocolatier and an artist and most importantly, a mom of five kids. And I just love life. So learning is my forte, I guess. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so just f- before we jump into everything, can you explain a little bit what is a master chocolatier and what goes into that? It is a old school way of um, getting a title based off of the apprenticeship system. And we do not have one here in America, but I've kind of followed the same sort of pattern. So I'm mostly self-taught. I did go to the Art Institute of Seattle for one year, baking and pastry, Mm -hmm. but it's more like a grenade approach to expose you to all sorts of things. And we only touched chocolate twice. So basically I'm self-taught for chocolate, but in order to become a master chocolatier, you need to be assigned that title from other master chocolatiers. So you have to prove yourself in the industry to the point that the the elites of the industry consider you among them. Um, and currently, I'm one of the top ten in the world. Wow, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California, unfortunately. Uh, so <laughs> I don't do well with heat um, or insincere people. Um, so Californians can be amazing. Um, sorry, not all Californians. Um, but uh, Washingtonians are amazing. And um, I love the weather and real life that we have here. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I bloomed here, but I grew up in Southern California. Got it. So when you were growing up in Cali- uh, SoCal, was that like, did you always kind of feel like it wasn't, you weren't in uh, the place you should be? Yeah, I was sick all the time. I had bronchitis every year, the smog, I had trouble breathing. Um, I am very heat intolerant, so I'd faint all the time. I'd get heat, not stroke, but heat, uh, whatever the one under that is. Mm-hmm. I, life was pretty miserable for me. So Yeah, I left as soon as I could. I moved out at 18, and uh, within a year, I was up here in Washington. Wow. What what led you to Washington? Washington, we had, my husband and I, we got married at 18, and my husband had an uncle up here uh, in Bellevue, and so he had a room for rent, and it was much cooler. So that's why we decided to give it a try, because I had no idea where we wanted to live, and we were just open for it. And Mm -hmm. then I fell in love with Washington in general, just not cities. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. So once you guys moved up here, what were you you doing? I was raising kids uh, and going to school. I went to University of Washington and got my degree slowly. Um, I actually have um, three degrees and one shy of another degree, finance. But I have a degree in entrepreneurship, accounting, and uh, marketing from University of Washington. Um, But yeah, I was raising my kids and um, just enjoying life, for sure. Nice. So was... Was entrepreneurship and like small business, was that something like your family had been involved in? Or what kind of led you to study that? I love tackling problems and proving people wrong because I can do it. Um, And too many times you are a person is thought of as not being capable of doing something for whatever reason. And I was often in that situation. And (laughs) so I just, my life became proving people wrong. And when, through success, you know, becoming better than they ever thought I could be. So that is entrepreneurship in so many facets. You just tack on a service or a product and there you go. So becoming one of the world's best chocolatiers is no different than anything else I was doing. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, you know, you were raising kids and when did you start getting interested in looking outside of the house as far as possibly doing something else? Um, I am... I wanted to be a homebody. I wanted to be like the block mom, and I loved doing that, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't as fulfilling as I thought it would be um, because there was always something more. Um, So I'm just not a workaholic, but I I guess some people would call me that. But I enjoy working, but more importantly, I enjoy providing and 
not only growing the community, but advancing um, people's lives, enriching other people' li- other people's lives because it gives me pleasure. It's kind of like giving a gift. It's not necessarily giving that person something. It's about enriching both their life and your life in in the process um, through just generosity. Um, so yeah, I had to be part of the community. So I was just drawn to learn, and then when we couldn't afford me staying in school, um, I had to start <laughs> earning an income. <laughs> nice. So where where was that income? Where did that come from? Oh, you know, I, I'll do anything. So I ended up uh, working for a real estate company doing um, um, office, just secretarial work, which is hilarious because I'm dyslexic and my biggest job was filing. And <laughs> that was a sheer nightmare for me, but I managed it. Um, and got really fast and good at it, um, but I still hate it to this day. Um, but I'll do anything. Um, so, and then I ended up working at movie theaters and um, to get free movies because uh, we didn't have much money. And then I ended up at Costco for um, eleven years doing all sorts of jobs just because I love learning. Yeah. Um, so I kind of worked up my chain up the chain there, and um, yeah. Then I decided, you know what? I'm going to risk it all on myself. And I started a company. Wow. Mm -hmm. So how did that, you know, that jump for a lot of people is very scary uh, and trying to figure out that step. How did you kind of prepare yourself for that? Because from what I've heard, Costco's a good place to work. Costco's amazing to work at. They pay you well. There's benefits. There's these things here. So then I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, why do you jump from something like that to your own thing? Well, um... Life gets in the way. So I um, got pregnant and had my third child, which was amazing, which was great. Uh, But I ended up hurting myself really bad um, during the pregnancy. One of my ligaments didn't stretch Mm -hmm. um, well, and it had been nine years since my last pregnancy. So I just thought it would it just normally would hurt more. So I didn't complain or do anything about it. Yeah. and, And I ended up not being able to walk after delivery. Um, it was very major injury to my back um, and my leg. So uh, speak up if you are in pain. Um, but uh, so I had to take a year off of Costco, um, literally because I couldn't walk. And I had to relearn as an adult for the first time how to walk. Um, I've had to do it again since then for other reasons. But um, so during that time, I couldn't just sit still. I think it's a waste of time if I'm not contributing to to um, the community in general. So I decided to go to um, baking and pastry at Art Institute, learn how to cook, which everyone thought was insane because um, you can't cook from a stool, and I couldn't walk. So... <laughs> Um, I had little stools everywhere, so I was like a little frog hopping from one to the other. And um, it actually worked beautiful as a um, physical therapy because you can't just stay there. You're you're enticed <laughs> to go do a dish, you know, clean that or go get that from the fridge or whatever. So it actually worked wonderful as a physical therapy, and I learned. And that's where I fell in love with chocolate because I didn't even like chocolate before that. <laughs> um, and the only reason I went into the baking and pastry side versus the culinary side is because my husband's a chocolateholic, which I didn't understand because chocolate is meh, it's okay. Um, but uh, I we touched chocolate twice, but I... I made a ganache there, which is simply cream and cut up chocolate, and you pour that boiling cream over the chocolate, and it just turns into this magical emulsion that tasted great and smelled amazing, and more importantly, it transformed right in front of my eyes, and I, <laughs> I, I, I basically fell in love, almost like getting married or having a kid. You, I just knew I was going to be with chocolate the rest of my life, and. <laughs> That was the first time I enjoyed chocolate. Wow. Um, and it wasn't even the best chocolate, but it was actual real chocolate. I had never had real chocolate until then. It was just the candy that you see on the supermarket shelves. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of how it went, and it turned out that I'm really good at it, apparently. <laughs> um, so I went, at the end of that graduation ceremony, 
I was given all sorts of offers to work at Caesar's Palace or at the Hyatt or everyone wanted me to be a pastry chef. And I said, I've got kids. I don't want to move to Vegas. I don't want to work God knows how many hours every weekend and miss my kids. So I said, no. But one of the head judges there, uh, because they had a competition as well, which I won. Um, but um, one of the head judges convinced me, he goes, you need to be a part of this field. You have to figure out a way to continue it because you're amazing at it. And I don't say that lightly. Um, and so I was like, huh, okay. So I started <laughs> making uh, chocolates and kind of seeing if I can sell them at the farmer's market and bring him to work because I finally returned back to Costco. And um, yeah, apparently everyone wanted it and... I was like, okay, I'm going to bite the bullet and see if I can put all my business training to work because, you know, I had those business degrees. Let's just take a risk and do it myself, even though everyone told me no. I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it. I couldn't do this. And I said, okay, (laughs) let me try. And uh, I believe in myself, so I did. It was scary, though. (laughs) It was definitely scary, but I didn't let the world see that I was terrified. (laughs) But, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. So then, um, as you started making the chocolates and stuff, where did the name Forte come from? I played five different instruments growing up. Again, I'm an overachiever, so... um, I did flute, piccolo, baritone, bassoon, and tuba. (laughs) And uh, tuba and um, piccolo both take the most amount of air, so I'm full of hot air, apparently, (laughs) (laughs) is what my family used to joke. But forte comes from that musical term because the first time I had real chocolate, it was so intense, but also I heard music. So apparently I have this... A weird kind of thing. It's called synesthesia. And when I taste food, like good food, I hear music in my head. Wow. So it's, yeah, apparently not everyone does it. And I thought, <laughs> I thought everyone did. So, um, yeah. So uh, that's kind of like my secret weapon for forte because not only was it strong, but it was also musical because forte means loud and bold. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to do, you know, real chocolate and bold flavors. And um, yeah, so the musicality is still a huge part of the company wow. because it's kind of, I when I create like the truffle flavors, it's not just about, you know, blaring a trumpet at you. It's, it, you know, no one likes just one long note, um, but it's creating that melody and it's creating that symphony that happens in movement in a song. So when I design my truffles, I create that by listening to the music that it provides. And so apparently it works really well. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, there's, they're saying that like when I, I took a bite of that, like the, the angels were singing or like there were yeah. things, but like <laughs> you're literally here. Yeah. Music. yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. And forte um, also is known as like, what's your forte? It comes yes. from the, the word um, to describe <clears throat> the balance point of the, of a sword. So, like, the mm. strongest part of the sword. Um, so it became a skill, and so people would ask, what's your forte? And it was referring to, what's your strength? Okay. Yeah, so all of that just resonated, plus people can spell it. And I wasn't great at spelling with my dyslexia, so I thought a short little name would be great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, very cool. So, real quick, just because you've mentioned it, the so the... The mute, the what did you call it when you hear something? Synesthesia. And so, in your research of that, is it? Do they have any idea like what causes it, or like how many people? Brains, have it? brains are very strange, and synesthesia is not very common. But there are definitely a lot of people with it throughout the world, but it takes different forms. Mm -hmm. So I had never met another person that had synesthesia. The next person I met was actually a gal um, over in Europe, and she does taste with color. When she tastes, she sees colors. So like that map on my wall is the example of what she teaches, how to taste through color. And I was like, how do you taste through color? That's bizarre. And so (laughs) I was like, I hear music, but I don't taste color. She's like, you hear music? And it was this whole conversation. And then um, there's only one person in the world that beats me in flavor. And and 
she listens to music as she tastes too. We were judging um, in Brazil, a competition in Brazil, and she's like, oh, the musicality of this is really good. I was like, wait a minute, what? You hear music too? She's So it's very, very rare um, that you would hear the music, whereas it just as rare as someone would see the colors. But some people feel textures. It's basically your senses get misfiring or haywire. Um, so yeah, brains are cool and exciting and weird. Yeah. <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, and, and we were talking before we started recording, just kind of how the more, you know, as you go through challenges as child, children and, and you have to work through certain things, your brain is expanding and growing. And the more you use it, the stronger it's getting. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it kind of, my mother, she hates it when I say this, but my mother's maiden name is Cook. And <laughs> we used to say it's a warning to everyone, Cook, because she can't. It's <laughs> so bad. She would burn everything. I grew up on the blandest food out there. So I wasn't hearing music when I grew up. Mm-hmm. But then I had, my uncle actually took me to a restaurant where, um, it was sushi and the other stuff, so sushi or so, yeah, whatever that is, um, where they do it all performance in front of you, and it was like this really expensive restaurant in California, and um, that was the first time I heard music, and apparently you have to eat real food and um, <laughs> not just mac and cheese, um, but that that experience it was so overwhelming and powerful that I think my brain couldn't handle it. So it misfired in a way that was beautiful. And, um, growing up being dyslexic, I had to learn different ways to do it. Um, and to just get through life. So yeah, we, we use our challenges to either, well, the challenges will either break you down and destroy you, or you can embrace them and like, cool. All right. This is, I've got this, let's name it, let's recognize it. Now let's see how I can use it to my advantage. So, and that's kind of what I've done. And now with my multiple sclerosis, MS, um, I could barely walk um, and use half of my body. I I just can't use it. But the other half of my body still works. And um, that means I get to create new cool ways of doing the same thing when I had two hands, now just with one hand. So I use it to my advantage and... It really makes you appreciate life, um, just in general. I like to say life is as beautiful as you make it, and I insist on my life being amazingly beautiful. So that's pure and simple. It's all attitude. Yeah. Well, and I love what you just said there. I think um, you know. I think a lot of counselors would would want to quote it. Is what you just mentioned there is figuring out what it is, naming it, and then recognizing it. Recognizing it, and then. And then you use it and you move on. And I feel like, cause I, I you know, I, I grew up in the nineties and, and my, <laughs> you know, parents or like a lot of the people of that generation, like counseling therapy, any of that was a very negative thing. Yeah. So um, it was in the eighties by far. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's definitely come a long ways, but there's still a lot of people that feel mm-hmm. like if I go to counseling or I go to therapy, it's going to then drag me back to where I was yeah. and then I'll be stuck there. Yeah. And, um, I think what how you just phrased that is exactly how it's not that it's dragging up all of your trauma and everything in the back and like going to get you stuck there again. It's actually pulling it out of the box and saying this is what it is. Yeah. And it, it's like a hurdle. Okay, so there's the hurdle that I like have to deal with. I can't ignore it. It's literally there. I I can't get around it. But Okay, let's let's take that hurdle and see if I can embrace it to use it to my advantage. Because we all have stuff, you know. Maybe you're missing a limb, or maybe you suck at running and you <laughs> need to get somewhere fast, and you don't have a bike, you know. So you create a way like a skateboard. And the point is, you 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 have to recognize it, not just hide from it, which we were all taught way long ago to hide all of our issues, which mm-hmm. is so ridiculous and not so harmful. So instead, let's embrace our issues. Let's talk about our issues, but not get bogged down by them. That's the key. Don't give the power to, it's kind of like bullying. If you give that power to that bully, it's going to take you down. Instead, you rise above and you take away that power 
And the same with a disability or, or a hurdle is you take the power away yeah. and use it to your advantage. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, I, I, you know, I, I am glad my kids get to get grow up in this, in this era where they're able to talk about these things, work through these things. They're not just thought, oh, well, that person's dumb, put to the side, and they yeah. move on. Yeah, it's not um, shameful to have a problem or an issue or a hurdle. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, we're human. Right. <laughs> and when I make a really big mistake, I either say one or two day, two things. I go, oops, my human, my human is showing again. Uh, <laughs> my human side is showing again. Or I like to say, oh, it's my first day. Sorry. Which is hilarious because <laughs> I've done this for years. But we're like, oh, it's my first day. Oh, it's my second day. I got it right. You know, <laughs> just don't take yourself too seriously. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, those are all, I think that's, it's nice to be able to do that and be able to, yeah, push, you know, learn from your mistakes and, and move on. And You cannot be successful until you learn and embrace making mistakes. Children play, right? Mm-hmm. They wrestle, they play animals, they this, do the same thing, they play fight, all of those things. That is for learning through play. Why did we ever stop that as an adult? Yeah. Life is so much more fun if you just take a risk and find it exciting to see what happens. I fail purposely over and over and over again just so I can find out what happens. It's cause and effect. And then through those failures, it, I don't even think they're failures, through those um, those attempts or, or um, ways of finding you know things out... I learn and I'm so much more successful so much quicker because I embraced failure. And when someone makes a mistake, I'm like, yay, let's celebrate the mistake. Let's all learn for it. So now everyone here doesn't have to make it personally, but let's recognize it and like, cool, that's why we don't do it. But now it makes sense. You have to make mistakes. You have to fail in order to succeed. I wish that was taught in school. Yeah. Fail, fail, fail. Just like kids playing on the on the schoolyard, it's or on before they even get to school. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> do it. <laughs> well, and so this is something. Um, uh, so I was I was listening to a podcast that was talking about generations uh, and specifically in, in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and how first generation has built up the business, so they knew everything that took to get to that point. Yes, and they said second generation a lot of times ends up being more of like a. They think of themselves as they enter the business, if they end up taking it over, as like a steward. Yes. Like, they don't want to destroy what their parent... Because they saw what, how much work it was. They don't They don't want to do it. that work. They don't want to do it <laughs> yeah. again. So they end up being really careful. And by the third generation, that third generation doesn't know what went into making the business. Correct. They don't fully respect it as a stewardship thing, because it's always been there. And yes. so then it usually falls apart at that age. Because changes are introduced without knowing the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. But for a second generation or someone that maybe is more erring on the side of caution or like analytics, how, what would you say to them to encourage them in that, that failure is not the end? I, I'm speaking this because I myself struggle with this from like a, I am that second generation. So it's yeah. like, I saw my dad build the business. I saw this happen. And it's always, there's always a little bit of fear there of like, well, what if I make this wrong mistake and all yeah. of a sudden the business goes under and it's over? Well, okay, so go back to your dad, okay, or myself, starting a business. You don't know anything. You honestly <laughs> don't know anything. So you just kind of take an idea that you're like, I kind of am good at this. Let's see, and throw it together, and then put it in front of people and start developing a very thick skin, because then you're told <laughs> just how that didn't work, or, um, hey, that looked really cool, but it's not going to work, you know. So then you go back and start again and it's all very quick it's it's one after the other like doing the farmer's market and you're like oh that didn't work and then the next day you or the next time you do it you bring different flavors and then the next time you do it you go oh different packaging different price point different whatever the point is you're constantly changing so as an entrepreneur is you're literally building in quick fails to try something Mm -hmm. on a small scale and people don't realize it. And this is one of the things that is core to me is stay broke for as long as you can. 
especially when you're starting a business. Don't take the money. Don't go get loans. Just use your small savings, not your life savings, but give yourself an incredibly tight shoestring budget. Because when you stay broke, you learn what the problems are. Money does not fix your problems. It just intensifies your problem. Because it may put a Band-Aid on it, but the problem is usually something that you're not seeing just yet. So by staying broke, you have to think fast on your feet. You don't have quick fixes, and you discover problems a lot faster. Mm. So a second generation has all of the things already laid out for them, and they don't want to ruin it, right? Right. So what you need to do is create small, quick fails, so, again, embrace failure because it's playtime. So you're <laughs> going to go, okay, I'm going to see, we keep complaining that your prices are too high or we keep hearing that your prices are too high. Okay, cool. So we're going to take three items and we are going to price them completely different in a new market, but in a small little thing and test it for, say, three months or a limited time period. And um, you're going to find out is that successful? Is it not? But all of those little quick failures is what you need to find opportunities to do mm-hmm. because those failures are actually more useful knowledge-wise than your success because you don't know how to replicate that success yeah. and you don't know how to create it from scratch. So you need to come up with more of a um, creator mentality um, to adapt the business in a new way because it's a new world. Every generation has to adapt the business to the new world. Yeah. It's just a fact of life. So, yeah, just build it as if you are new without undoing the original stuff. Just, you know, if you have an idea, great. Test that idea on a small scale. Yeah. And just have fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you also mentioned something there, too, of... and. And now that I've talked to more business owners um, that, you know, have ups and downs, especially in the retail world, a lot of times <laughs> I feel like you have a day all of a sudden, like you have double the sales of a normal day. And you're like, I, I don't know why. That it's happens. a one off. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you mentioned there is like in your successes, like if you have, you've been like, maybe you had a really good, you know, last year or something. Mm-hmm. It's hard to look back over that year and say, well, it's because I did this, this and this. A lot of times you're looking over like. I don't feel like we did anything different than the year previous, but last year was way better. Yeah. So that's the difference of being in your business, working in your business, to working on your business. Mm -hmm. So if you were to step back, and you're just looking at reports at this point, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, I don't know what happened. You're not driving the business. So instead, you go, okay, here are our goals for next year. We don't quite understand what happened so let's test so like that price indicator so i wouldn't just do take a small section and lower three prices i would take a small section lower three prices and then i'd increase those same items to a higher price point that seems ridiculous and then i would like try some sort of bundling or whatever and so i'd try three or four different ways so now you have the scientific method because your number of products didn't change, your market is a new market, so that's that stays the same. So you basically changed one value, and that's your price points. Mm. So and even bundling and price points is the same you know, one one value. So go back to the scientific method. Yeah, it's it, try lots of things. One thing isn't gonna. It's gonna be so slow, <laughs> so slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So um, so then. You started the, uh, going back to Forte, you started Forte and you were doing it at farmer's markets and and doing little things. Um, When did it kind of become something more that you were like, okay, I think this is really, this is what I'm going to do? Well, okay. So I, I was terrified, right? Absolutely terrified. So I liked saying that I'm risk, uh, a huge risk taker, but I'm actually somewhat risk adverse a little bit. So I played it safe because it could go wrong, right? So I had the business and I kept my job at Costco. So I did it all on the side Mm -hmm. for three years. I had to break even or make a profit within three years, which is the benchmark that all business school people are taught that you will succeed if you can do that. And it's incredibly hard. And so I did. 
And I was like, all right, I promised myself if I could be profitable in the first three years doing it on the side, I will go all in. And that's what I did. And oh, geez. The, the hardest day of my life was hiring an employee. Um, not actually finding the employee. That was easy. But um, the first day she showed up and she goes, okay, what do you want me to do? And I go, I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a water heater somewhere. Can you get us hot water? Turn it on? I don't know. Somewhere. Um, but it was the sheer realization that I am now responsible for someone else's livelihood, uh-huh. her her money, her her income. That was terrifying. So I take that incredibly seriously. So in order to grow, I not only had to believe in myself, I had to like force success because I could not let my employee down because she's taking a risk on me. She doesn't know any of that because I, you know, I'm confident and you know, whatever, but no, it was, it was very, very scary. So, um, taking that step and making it real, I think a lot of people just don't have the goals to, to truly do it. They just talk about it. Yeah. And I'm of the philosophy of just go all in. So say yes, try it, um, which is great, but it's really scary sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Very and, and I think that is such an important piece. Um, it's definitely when I, when I think of the business, I don't think of it from a like the business, um, like as a structure, I guess I think of it as people of the team that you exactly business is people. Yeah. I, I love to say you build relationships first, do business second. Mm -hmm. Um, and apparently it's more of a female way of, you know, approaching business. I had my kids with me. I was turned away from appointments because people are like, you're not a real business if you have kids with you. Uh, which I can see that because you know kids can be really distracting. But <laughs> when did when did we decide in life that kids shouldn't be around us as parents? We had them because we wanted kids. Why do they need to be excluded from our life? So, mm-hmm. anyways, I just drew a different line. Um, but doing relationships is incredibly important to me, and so my biggest worry is creating the culture that is not only good for the company, but good for the community. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, good for the individuals working here because they're lending me part of their life. Yeah. And I, you know, it's a job, but I, I view it as a very big responsibility, not just financially and stability, but I have to teach them something with their time, more than just the job. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I've failed them in some way. Um, I need to em- enrich their lives with some sort of skill they can take somewhere else, even if that means I've taught them the skill and then they leave because now they bloomed and they know that they can do something somewhere else better or go to school and learn that task. And that's... Yeah. I lose too many employees to uh, opening up that, you know, that passion of theirs. And yeah. it's not going to be here for them. And But I support people first, yeah. first and foremost. Yeah. So, and it hurts the business, but I think that's how the world should work. So yeah. that's how I work. Yeah. yeah. And I think uh, being in the industry that we're, that I'm in, in the retail side, um, <clears throat> that was probably the hardest thing when I took over the business is realizing 95% of the people I bring on are going to move on because yeah. this is just a Stepping high school stone. job or yeah. an early before college job or, a, you know, so then I had to shift my perspective of, well, I really like this person. So I want them here forever to yeah. what can we give them? And a lot of these people, it's their first job. Yeah. And so what do we, what tools are we giving them? You know, and that means holding them accountable to doing a good job and interacting well and doing these things. Teaching them how to do a good job, but also teaching them what a good employer should should do for them as well. Yeah. You know, because yes. not to be taken advantage of. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And I think that um, that's a big piece, too, is making sure that they, you know, and, and I feel like, you know, we, we try and implement these uh different pieces to try and make sure we're connecting with our team. You know, our mm-hmm. team now is, or in the summer it ramps up to somewhere around 30 ish um, people. 
Um, a lot of them part-time, but that's a lot of people that interact with on a regular basis. So we have like weekly reports and different things to try and have touch points with all of our team. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, a lot of these, again, a lot of these kids, it's their first job. And so a lot of them are like, why do I have to do another thing at, you know, like a weekly report or do these other things, but, um, you know, trying to connect with them and, and see that. And I think some of them like talking to them that have moved on, um, I think are realizing that we are a little different than other companies. Yeah. I like to apologize to a lot of my employees for all of the crap that they've had to take from other employees Mm -hmm. or other employers, not employees, because too many times if they're not a first time job, which it's usually not a first time job, but um, they've come from places where they didn't treat them as human beings. Mm -hmm. Like if they got sick for too long, they were fired. Mm -hmm. If you get sick here and you can't work for extended periods of time, you are guaranteed to have a job. That's how it should be. I don't care about the laws. You're going to be protected here. If you're pregnant and a female and get pregnant, you will have a job here, period, when you get back, even if it's two years later because you needed to be with your child or whatever it is. Mm. You know, um, it's just we need to treat people like human beings, not numbers and hands and bodies. Yeah. And that's... So ashamed. So I feel like I have to be that guiding light and, you know, help change our society one employee at a time because hopefully they'll pay it forward. Yeah. You know, that's that's all I could hope for, you know, but I have to be super diligent or, or uh, diligent. diligent to make sure that I'm never looking at a one-sided transaction I have to give way more than I take from that employee or I have not done my job right. And if they failed during that job, it's my fault because I haven't taught them enough. I either hired the wrong person or I didn't provide the training or the support or the, you know, the equipment or whatever it is. It's my fault that they're not doing well. So, you know, I wish other employers would realize that they have that, um, Responsibility. responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. So one day, yeah. <laughs> one day it well, will be like that. And also what you mentioned there is something that I think is so important is, is taking ownership. Um, regardless of where it is up and down the chain, it's your, you, it, if you're the owner, it all falls down. It falls back to you. Um, yeah. It's not someone's fault. And the whole, the whole notion, and I love Costco. Costco is an amazing company. Jim Senegal was the CEO when I worked mm-hmm. there. I actually um, went and talked to him in his office simply because I asked to talk to him during Christmas yet. And he even met me uh, for a <laughs> whole hour in his office, which is saying something. But he he drove into the notion that um, he doesn't want managers. He wants leaders. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want... Um, anyone in the higher echelons, you know, the, um, the manager, not those people who like the CEO, but be the board, yeah, right. Board of directors and and, and you know, all of those, um, he never wants them to treat the lowest rung person, the newest hire any different than they would treat their, their colleagues. Mm -hmm. As soon as they do, they're out. Because the lowest rung on your ladder is some of the most important people because they have a fresh perspective. They are the ones talking with your consumer. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are doing those, those side tasks that are incredibly valuable for your company. And too many times they're treated as like the peon, like it doesn't matter. They are disposable. And Jim Senegal really brought home the idea that they're some of the most important people of your company, period. And if you're not listening to them, you are not uh, gaining um, respect from your employees and you're not doing your company justice. Yeah. So I've, I've kept that yeah. for sure. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So getting back to chocolate. <laughs> um, so I know I, I keep know. leading us. I keep leading us down these tangents, but fascinating. I love chocolate. Chocolate's great. <laughs> <laughs> um what are the things that make chocolate different? Because obviously, um, my, my dad started a coffee company, so coffee industry was something I learned a little bit about. Yeah. And in that, 
if you walk down a grocery store aisle or you Google organic coffee, <laughs> hundreds or thousands yeah. of companies are going to pop up and you're going to like, okay, well, this one's $20, this one's $12, this one's... So it's hard to tell from a spreadsheet or a, a description why it's different. How do, in the chocolate world, how do chocolate, how does chocolate become different versus from what something you make versus something that a chocolatier that's just getting started makes? Oh, there's a lot to unpack in that question. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, let me see if I can simplify it. Um, it's very similar to uh, chocolate walks um, along the coffee world um, side by side because of the growing. It's beans. It, it grows literally side by side with coffee mm-hmm. and it's harvested yeah. and transported and roasted even. Mm. Um, all of those mimic the coffee world to a tea. Um, and it has a lot of those flavor profiles that are brought out by the heat and um, um, things like that. But then we also walk just as nicely with the wine world and that where it comes down to the terroir and the different acids that are in there and the fermentation process that's required to go through. Um, and then the wine world has used to be considered the most complex flavor wheel. Mm-hmm. had 300 different recognizable point yeah yeah chocolate wheel is 500 it is by far the most complex so chocolate um is literally the most complex food it also is really really cool because it is a polymorph so scientifically speaking it's super cool because it can take um six different forms naturally and I get to control it to what it's going to be. And it's wow. super cool. Um, I, I mean, I teach this at the really high-end levels, like chemical engineering students at University of Washington, yeah. how to do tempering. Um, but it's also super fun and easy. But if you know and understand what it is. But as far as how do you know as a consumer what chocolate is better than the next? Buy chocolate, buy all sorts of chocolate, whatever catches your eye, because uh, frankly, it's marketing and packaging and availability that's going to matter to you, and price point, let's face it, price point will um, change your decisions. Mm-hmm. But honestly, and <laughs> I judge a lot of chocolate competitions, so it's funny for me to say this, um, but um, <laughs> it's your mouth. Eat what you like, mm-hmm. the best chocolate in the world, is the chocolate that you enjoyed while sharing an, an experience either with someone or having an epiphany yourself. That chocolate is going to always remain the best chocolate in the world to you because of what was surrounding it. It still had to taste good. But um, just because I'm a judge, be, just because I produce my own chocolate, doesn't mean you're going to like my chocolate or agree with it. So uh, experts be damned. enjoy what you enjoy. The reason why the price points are different is because of either marketing or what goes into it, like the packaging or the transport or the quality of the ingredient itself. Mm -hmm. That makes a huge difference. And whether it's processed by hand or machine, those are literally the cost points, the transportation and the hand processing because labor, hand labor. So that goes into your price point. So just play around and taste and make your own decisions because yeah. no one should tell you what you like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I love that, um, you know, I, I was trying to learn some about the wine world and, and getting to, and I was like, I think like maybe when I'm retired, but like, I don't have the time to put that much energy into learning all of that. Yeah. And what I've kind of defaulted to is, is that like there are certain bottles of wine. I'm like, you know, like there's the, and people are going to laugh at me, but like the, one of the, I think it's the 14 hands wine that they have at Costco <laughs> yeah. is like a $7 bottle of wine. And I'm like, yeah. it's, it's an easy drinking wine. It's great. You just serve it and it's, it's good. It's not the best. It's not complex or whatever, but it's just a. Never apologize for <laughs> what you like. Enjoy it. Even if it's a guilty pleasure, enjoy it. The price point doesn't matter. I am a master chocolatier. I'm like one of the best, right? I still eat peanut M&Ms, which is not (laughs) even chocolate. It's candy, but it's hilarious. I love it because I grew up with it and it's nostalgia to me, but I don't consider that chocolate. That's candy. But it's just like, and I do have access to amazing chocolates 
And sometimes I just prefer to have, you know, the the, the cheap, thing. the simple thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's okay. <laughs> Enjoy the chocolate you like. Yes. Um, so when you're making, because you've you've talked about that you've made all these different uh, as you do the flavors and you you're trying stuff, you're you're relying on um, the synesthesia <laughs> and some of that. Yeah. Um, how does that, like, do you get ideas of what you want to do for a truffle and then start playing with it? Okay, so I love making life hard, apparently. <laughs> uh, most chocolatiers work with three, maybe four chocolates, like one milk, one white, and maybe two darks, like a 85 and a 70%. And then they build all of their recipes on top of those so that sourcing is easy, they don't have to worry about it because sourcing chocolate can be really annoying. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's not as easy as people might think. Um, <laughs> or as cheap. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, I work backwards. I have an idea and then I find the flavor that I'm looking for and then I pair it with the chocolate. So the chocolate, I, I work with over 40 different chocolates in my kitchen. Wow. Which is insane. Every chocolatier that has ever visited here, they're like, why do you do that? Life is insane for you. I go, I know. Sourcing is a nightmare. But it's where I want it to be in the flavor category. And that's one of the reasons why my flavors are so well balanced is because I don't just try to make everything fit into that square box. Yeah. I start with an idea and build the box around it and then match the chocolate to it. Yeah. Um, so, like, where do I get my ideas? Because um, I, I love food. Yeah. I love eating um, good food. So, um, I, for example, my lemon pepper bar. Yeah. Okay, it's one of my favorite and most popular. Um, it was inspired by a Greek potato. And a Greek potato, for those who don't know, is a baked potato that is cut in half long ways and then rebaked in a pool of lemon juice. Okay. So that the open face will absorb that lemon juice. And then it's served usually typically with butter and uh, pepper and salt. And that's it. And it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. But one day we were at Rhodes um, in Cedarelli, which is unfortunately closed down. They, um, the waitress was the only one, and they were packed. They had lots of sickles that day. And I couldn't get any butter. I was like, I need butter with my potato. Um, so I reached in my purse and put white chocolate in the potato because it's, you know, cocoa butter is buttery tasting. And I was like, I'll bet you this will work. <laughs> and I ate it and I was like, whoa, there is something to this flavor. <laughs> this is amazing. So um, I, that was my first flavored wow. um, truffle, well, um, savory flavored truffle. Um, so I just get ideas from eating good food. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. That, and that one is, I mean, for anyone that hasn't tried that, you've got to go and try that because I don't think there's any other chocolate company that does anything close to that. And it's, it's really amazing. Well, what's funny is when I became a chocolatier, I go, I'm going to do chocolatiering right. I'm only going to work with dark chocolate and I'm not going to do with white chocolate because it's not real. Well, that's hogwash. White chocolate is real chocolate, by the way. I will sit and argue with you for hours telling you exactly why it's true, um, um, despite what Germany put in their law books, and that's why that rumor started. But yeah, it was all financially based, but it doesn't matter. Always. Um, it's always, yeah. So anyways, um, white chocolate is amazing to pair with flavors because dark chocolate has so much going on with it. Yeah that it can often overshadow. Um, so mm. a good pairing not only has to taste good, it's easy to make a good pairing, but a great pairing means both entities have to be elevated by each other, by the pairing, to create something new. And that white chocolate doesn't get in the way often uh, if you do it right. And, uh, oh, my gosh, I was, I've been named the queen of white chocolate. <laughs> the Wall Street Journal did um, said that the uh, lemon pepper and the um, what was it the espresso white chocolate bar were changing the face of white chocolate in America. <laughs> um, but I do white chocolate totally differently because I hated white chocolate; it was yeah. gross. 
but my white chocolate I craft in a whole different way, and it's really expensive to yeah. make, incredibly expensive to make, uh, but it's so worth it. So try that bar. It, I don't care if you like chocolate, white chocolate before. Try it because it will change your mind. Yes. It's hugely different. Yes. Well, and, and your white chocolate um, is, I think, the only white chocolate my wife will eat um, mm-hmm. because it is so different. Yeah, it's got 30% cocoa butter. Most white chocolate has 2% or less, Ooh. which is, <laughs> it's basically a candy. But in addition to that, we use quality cocoa butter and quality milk powder. I cannot stress the the amount of flavor, bad flavors you can get with horrible milk powder. Oh my gosh, that's why it's so expensive. It's I'm sorry, but I can't get it, you know, I yes. can't get it cheaply. <laughs> right, well, and, and yeah. I mean... If it was expensive before, we're living in this age now. Like, last year was just ridiculous. Yeah, I really, really kept my prices stagnant as long as I could. I hadn't raised my prices for close to eight years. Wow. And I was eating all of the chocolate uh, price increases and just keeping it like, how do I get more efficient and to not pass it on right. to the consumer? And let's, okay, this is a problem. Let's tackle it. Let's be more efficient. Let's do this. So I got so creative and then COVID happened and all of those supply chains, I was like, <clears throat> if I want to stay in business, I have to raise my prices because I've literally not done that for years. Yeah. And I'm barely, I, I don't make all that much money. Everyone thinks that I make tons of money, yeah, but it's not about, <laughs> it's not about the money for me. It's about creating a better world for tomorrow. In addition to getting to play with chocolate and eating chocolate every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think one thing, because we talked about that before about the business, not being about the business is about the people. Yeah. And when you have that perspective and understanding your price increases, like, I mean, one thing, I can, I would say that probably 99.99% of small businesses that raise their prices, they're not doing it cause, to get rich or something. Yeah. They're doing it because they've run the numbers. They're like, so we're in the red. And if we continue yeah. in this path, we won't be in business anymore. Well, and that's the thing. Profit is not a dirty word. Profit, mm-hmm. unless you're a nonprofit, um, which still operates profitable. They just yeah. put it back into the, you know, yes. so it's a... It's weird. People don't understand that they're still making a profit internally. Um, but profit is not a dirty word. And if I respect my employees the way mm-hmm. I do, I cannot take a loss. I have to continue making a profit so that I could provide a stable company that will still be there tomorrow so that they have a job and not only just have a job today, but have advancement possibilities. So right. if I'm not growing my company, there is no um, no way for my employees to move up. Yeah. So that also is hard on the employees. You yeah. Know? So yeah. So no, I'm not gouging anybody. And yes, I did raise it by a significant percent, but that's because I didn't want to raise it again, and I had to. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it was uh, it was a very hard decision, but yeah. we, we yeah. went ahead and did it. But well, and last year alone, we had to do three separate price increases and it wasn't to our final one, which I had to take. I was looking at the other ones and I did these smaller ones and the final one in that last year, I was like, if we don't do this, we're not going to stay in business. We're not going to be here. And and thankfully this year things have leveled out. So we're things like we're where we should have been last year. It's just last year price increases were so fast. You can't pass all that on. And I opted to do one large price increase because I'm pretty good at knowing what comes down the pike. So I did one price increase so I don't have to constantly do the little ones because it it degrades trust of the whole economy system. Right. Whether you realize it or not, it's your customers are looking to your pricing to see how stable the environment is, um, where the economy is. So I just did one large one and hopefully not have to do it anytime soon right and yes i know i'm already really expensive but if you taste it and understand what we do um then if you know even a five dollar truffle it's an expensive truffle but it's still affordable a five dollar treat that will blow your mind it's still affordable you know so just keep that in mind but you're just not going to be buying the 110 dollar box of chocolate right that's all (laughs) yeah well and i think uh something that has definitely come out for me is quality versus quantity. 
Yes. And um, that's huge. I think maybe this is just that as you get older, you realize this, but that piece is the, the thing that always stands out to me. I've always, not always, but lately that's been the biggest thing. It's like, I'd rather spend more money on this smaller thing than less money on a lot more of something that's like mediocre. Well, and my father really tried to teach me that young. He only bought one thing, like a tool or whatever it was, but he spent money on that. And we did not grow up with money. We were not well off at all. We became well off eventually, but growing up, we were quite poor. So to buy a really well-made item that took him, you know, over a year to save for, that sort of thing. I didn't understand why it was so important, but it didn't break, and he treated it like gold. Well, I didn't realize just how important that is in the food world as well, because growing up eating the cheapest food, you just end up consuming way more than you need to, and it's just not healthy for you. But again, that restaurant... It sure it cost a lot of money. I didn't pay for it. I don't know how much it, but that one meal was so different. And so, to this day, I remember it. And it was quality over quantity every time, folks. I think children really need to understand that yeah. um, sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yeah. Because we kind of hold on to that as parents. Right. But it is attainable even in the. We, I have so many children fans where they come in and they know which one that they want and their parents are like, okay, just one. Because, you know, but it's their weekly treat or monthly treat or whatever it yeah. is. And those children, they have better taste buds and better standards for food. Which and it doesn't <laughs> negatively affect them. The amount of times our kids eat whatever they got from the whatever party and they eat a couple pieces and they're at everything just goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that quality, that, that piece. And frankly, when you buy quality, you consume less Yeah. and that helps the environment and the community in a whole. So yeah, spend the money, go to the farmer's markets, buy real food, enjoy it, be happier and healthier and yeah, save the planet. Yeah. (laughs) It all works together. Awesome. So, You've accomplished a lot in getting to where you are now. Um, what do you see as the future of Forte Chocolates as you look ahead? <sighs> Bigger. Um, we, I've spent so many years with my foot on the brake uh, for growth um, because I'm constantly bombarded with growth opportunities. But until I knew that my product was literally the top of the game and not only best, but producible by other people. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge because otherwise I can only grow as much as I personally make, and that is not sustainable. Yeah. Um, so I had to get it so it's producible consistently to my quality by other people, which was incredibly hard. So I've taken so many years to doing that. Now I'm going to take my foot off the brake and... We are going, um, we're undergoing a rebrand and that will be launched hopefully by the end of this year and we should be going national. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. But well, see what I was saying? Stay broke as long as you can and right. then fix all your problems and then go big. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um, <laughs> you, you also mentioned something that... Um, that I've heard, um, I, I follow a lot of different business people, but one group I've been um, following for a long time is the Ramsey group. Um, Dave Ramsey is, you know, debt-free and stuff like that. But he, he has a, his, they've got a business section, which is like teaching business things. And he's like, don't use debt because then you can only make a, as big of a mistake as you can afford to make. Yes. He's <laughs> like, the amount of times that we had a great idea, if we had gone into debt, with that great idea, we wouldn't be here today. Correct. Yeah. You, you're more resourceful when you're broke because you have to be. Yeah. So don't throw money into the mix because you're just going to make stupid decisions. <laughs> yeah. It's just too easy to throw money at something. And yes, I've done it. <laughs> um, and so I have to remind myself, oh, shoot. <laughs> Listen to yourself. But I'm still not perfect. But thank goodness I love chocolate and business about the same. In fact, I might even love business slightly more than chocolate. Um, but just slightly because, you know, it, it's more to play with. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I like to let, end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. So what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three months? 
um, a card game with my kids. Um, and it's, it's just one of those, um, it's, I think it's called timeline and you, uh, just decide if it's, you know, sooner or later than that last one, what, or, you know, before or after the last one. And you think, you know, stuff, but <laughs> kids can guess just as much as you did. So, um, I, I enjoy simple pleasures like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was like $10 or less. And nice. I've played it so many times, yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life? Uh, that would be Taylor. He is like a son to me. He's not part of our family, but he's he's so important because he's my, um, let's just do it. Let, let's, he, he's not bogged down by traditional, you know, life life paths yeah and it's so refreshing to have someone to go and fail with yeah (laughs) yeah awesome um all right this is a fill in the blank question i know this is weird but i've always wanted to blank skydive (laughs) i think i will uh skydive on my 50th birthday i'm 48 now so yeah i think that's what i'm gonna do Mm -hmm. awesome yep (laughs) um who's an interesting or fascinating person that i should interview next Okay, this may sound weird, but I think it would be really cool if you were to sit and have a booth at the farmer's market and interview the random stranger that walks past because there were so many cool stories from unassuming people. Um, It will change your life just talking to people, actually talking to them. Yeah. Yeah, I think you should do that. That'd be fun. I've never thought about that. Yeah, just open it up like a 10-minute podcast, just random people talk about, you know, weird things like, what's your favorite, um, you know, quote in a song, and why did that change your life? Or if you can change one thing about reality, what would you change? Like, I want to touch a rainbow, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> some cool conversation starters <laughs> like that, not like, what do you do for a living, Yeah, you know? What's your spirit animal, not dog or cat? You know, what would it be? Things like, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Try it out. It's it's going to be fun. (laughs) Um, All right. And then lastly, what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Um, Don't stress. Just what is next? I was always worried about making it. And frankly, it doesn't matter if you made it or not. You just have fun in the process, so don't stress over making it, because you will eventually. But, yeah, just continue having fun, even when it's dismal. Just find a way to have fun. Because yeah. the, more, the more I was able to do that, easier, the, the better life became. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. All right. <laughs> And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Oh, and um, before you kick out, uh, he is wearing an amazing shirt. So you guys need to buy that shirt because it's this octopus on a shirt, and it's so cool. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Well, a big thank you to Karen Neugebauer for joining me on the podcast today, and thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to CaminoCommons.com slash podcast or just check out the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.